Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the center of the galaxy, this is the Force Center Podcast feed, and I'm Ken Napsok for another edition of Spotlight Star Wars. Though, actually, I don't think it's another edition. This is the 50th edition of Spotlight Star Wars. And I want to thank you all for allowing me to do 50 of these. This started on the Knapsack Files podcast feed. My own feed that I have, still maintain, sort of. More coming on that later. Trust me if you're listening to that. Um, but what had happened, uh, some of you know the story. I had hosted Jedi Lions with Mon Garrett. She left. I carried on. Had some great episodes after that. But the time came... For me to leave Jedi Lines. And as I approached that deadline, I thought to myself, I still want to talk Star Wars somewhere. So I have my own podcast feed. I have my own microphone. I'm just going to sit my ass down and start talking Star Wars to myself. Didn't know if anyone would listen. And uh, the first few episodes, like I said, were on that feed. And then I decided, let's do this. Let's start my own Star Wars feed. I reached out to Joseph Scrimshaw and said, Sir, could you please help me, you talented friend of mine? And we reached out to Jennifer Landa and said, Could you please help us, madam, our talented friend of ours? And that is where Force Center is, and Spotlight Star Wars is my monologue from me to you, Star Wars fans. And I, uh, I sometimes ramble, sometimes have a point, sometimes I just open the microphone and talk Star Wars from the top of my head. And I want to thank you all, like I said, for allowing me to do that. And 50 episodes, uh, I figured what better way to celebrate 50 of these than talking to you all about this thing. The 50 things I love about Star Wars. So if you noticed, uh, I didn't uh, record this show or release it on my normal Saturday because it took some time. Took some time to sit down and say, 50 through number one, what are the things I love about Star Wars? These can be tiny things, little moments, little sounds, little lines of dialogue, or they can be big things, or they can be characters. Uh, Though I originally thought about the movies, including Force Awakens, of course, uh, it expanded as I was writing this list to things, uh, some from comics, some from novels. Some from the uh, cartoons. Rebels, maybe. Clone Wars, maybe. What will show up? We don't know. It is on here. And and certainly, there's things that might not be on the list that you'd think, or things that I'm like, oh, I didn't include that. I kind of went off the top of my head a little bit, because I wanted to feel it. I wanted to use the Force as if the Force was real 
to determine for myself what are the 50 things I love about Star Wars. So I'm going to share them with you here today on the 50th edition of Spotlight Star Wars. Here we go. They're in order. 50 to number one. But we can debate. I'll debate with myself where I put some of these on the list. Without further ado, here we go. Number 50. The blaster sounds. Pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. Right? That's not how they sound, but that's how we've written it down. And that's how a lot of people refer to Star Wars and the blaster sounds. I even have a a t-shirt that says pew, 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 pew. And it's written in the style of the Star Wars logo. I love the blaster sounds. That's what I loved as a kid. I gravitated to that sound. That's not quite it, but you know what I mean. It is a distinguishable sound. It is a sound that you know is Star Wars and all other laser blasts and all other movies or cartoons pale in comparison to the sound of a good Star Wars laser blast. And I'll even count the shotgun-sounding one that Luke seems to have in New Hope when he and uh, Princess Leia are about to swing across the Death Star cavern there, Chasm. Listen to that. It sounds like a shotgun. Maybe on the maybe they've corrected it since. Original version. VHS. One of the blasts sounds like a shotgun. But the stormtroopers are fierce. The Empire is fierce. And the rebels are fighting back. And it is those blaster sounds that just kind of sink in in all those scenes. When you watch New Hope for the first time, and that opening, and the rebel troops, which already looked, they looked fearful, they looked outgunned, outnumbered, and those mean, menacing stormtroopers come blasting through... It is those sounds of the blasters ringing through the hallways of the blockade runner that just kind of grabs you in and gets you ready for the wars to come. Number 49, C-3PO's intro in The Force Awakens. I love C-3PO. Most of you love C-3PO. Most of you should love C-3PO. But for me, there's a lot of moments I could have put down here. A lot of moments... We all could have said, yep, that's funny. Yep, that's poignant. I like that. I like this. But I thought, actually, long and hard about this. My favorite C-3PO moment might be his first appearance in The Force Awakens. And I'm glad they did it that way, because they could have done it earlier. There was some stuff with Leia earlier in the story. It's certainly in the novel that Leia and 3PO and her team, her command team of the Resistance, show up earlier. But to show up when they do after the fierce battle on uh, Takadona, Maz Kanata's castle being destroyed, it's kind of intense. There's some dark stuff going on. But you got that moment with Han and Leia meeting again for the first time, and it's the first time we're seeing Leia again. And it's a great moment. What better way to introduce C-3PO than to have his head pop in? And be like, sir, Han Solo, it's me, C-3PO. You probably don't remember me because I have this red arm now. It was perfect, classic 3PO in a new era. And it was a sparkling, crisp way to reintroduce one of the best characters in the galaxy to a whole new generation. And made us old generation of fans very happy. It is one of my favorite 3PO moments, and it is definitely when I watch Force Awakens again and again and again. I get a big smile on my face every time I see it. It's pitch perfect. That's number 49 on my list. Number 48 of the 50 things I love about Star Wars, Force Awakens again, 
it's Ray saying to Finn in that excited, intrigued whisper, I thought Luke Skywalker was a myth. It's on Jakku. It's after they meet. It's when he's talking to Ray, making himself seem bigger than he is. But it's that great little moment that Daisy really does so well in these movies. Just exposes Ray's this character with little wanderlust and little excitement, and then later balances it out with being tied to Jakku and being fearful of the journey set before her. But also that moment pays off the end, which we'll hear from later, believe me. That moment where I thought Luke Skywalker was a myth also speaks to the story as it stands now in the Star Wars galaxy and how the great Luke Skywalker had vanished. The great Luke Skywalker was a myth. It's explained more even in Bloodline, the great Claudia Gray novel, where he still kind of freshly disappeared or freshly away on his mission. And even then, people were forgetting about the great Luke Skywalker. So for Rey, far away on the planet Jakku, that might be more tied to Luke Skywalker than anyone else in the galaxy. That moment of vulnerability and excitement and speaking to a greater story, a greater story yet to come for her, and also just speaks to a damn adorable moment with a character that we all grew to love fast. I love Ray. I love the execution of the character in the story. And I love a lot of little moments. The stuff with Ray and Jakku is some of my favorite of Force Awakens and all of Star Wars. But that little moment, I thought Luke Skywalker was a myth, which again is paid off so greatly later. It just speaks to bigger things while covering smaller things with a great character. Number 47, we're going to the prequels. That's right. Oh, you'd had to think the prequels would show up. They need to be on here. They're part of Star Wars. So number 47, we're going to Attack of the Clones. We're going to the beginning of the Clone Wars. Begun, these Clone Wars have. Into the arena scene, which has some good moments, has some bad moments. Attack of the Clones, it's got some bad moments. But one of my little favorite moments is that first battle on Genosis. When the clones show up, Yoda shows up. They're here to rescue everyone. Come into the arena scene, and those Republic gunships, the, the LATs, the L-A-A-T's, for those who like to say it like that, the LATs, the Republic gunships come in, and the clones, and they're shooting, and it's the great stuff. But there's some moments in that battle where Lucas does, uh, it's almost like his saving Private Ryan, where he's got this great battle, and he does these, these kind of these quick close-ups across the battle onto some of the gunships. And then there's the moment when they fly up, one of them flies up, and you see the, uh, the, the weapons on top kind of reload, and they launch into the battle. There's some great moments that, as a Star Wars fan, this is what connects to me on the playground. It connects to me as a 10-year-old with my friends saying, hey, you want to play Star Wars at lunch recess? It's those little moments, the little boy and little girl moments where you get excited about little tiny things, and they'll show up again on this list. But I remember seeing that in the theater thinking, That's, I love those shots. And the second and third time, fourth time, I think, uh, I think I saw clones four or five times in the theater. I've lost count. But even now, I love, I'll, I'll stop. I'll put clones on in the background, and I'll just kind of let it play. There's, there's some stuff I like about clones. I like the opening. I like Zam Wessel. Uh, I like that chase. I like some of the things. 
But the, the little moment there, if I'm in that, uh, the, just typing away, working, writing, and I know that scene's coming, I'll flip my chair around and I'll wait for those little zooms, those little close-ups on the Republic gunships. And the gunships themselves are pretty cool designs. I love that they show up again in some of the other cartoons, and I love even Rebels. We've seen some versions of them. Um, I, I love those little moments, little details in these big battles. Lucas is good at that, and you got to give him credit. Number 46 on my list is Han and Chewie's intro in The Force Awakens. Han Solo and the mighty Chewbacca. It was spoiled a little bit. I use the term spoiled, but I'm glad it was in the trailer. But the Chewie were a home moment from the second teaser trailer was uh, the moment that brought down, brought down the nation of Star Wars and brought tears from our eyes. Great moment. So, you know, when it shows up in the movie, you could kind of see it was coming. No one thought, uh, at least not in my theaters, people saw it for the first time. Not a lot of people thought that when Finn and Ray and BB-8 were hiding in the uh, Millennium Falcon, that the people coming in the door were going to be the First Order. No one fell for that. We kind of knew it was coming. Han and Chewie. So that moment, you know, kind of tough to live up to. It's kind of tough. The standards are going to be high. It's the first time we're seeing Han Solo and Chewbacca in a Star Wars movie. We saw it in the trailer, and it worked, but it was a little moment. So the scene could have been a complete disaster, but it wasn't. It was true to their character, to the humor, to the sarcasm, to the roughness, to the smuggler nature of Han Solo. And it, and it worked. And even though we had all seen Chewie Were Home countless times in the trailer, when it played in the full scene, in the movie, in the theater... It got everyone. And the scene plays out more. The intro of them, uh, there's some great moments. I love the moment where Han is standing pretty much where he was sitting in A New Hope where he told Luke and Obi-Wan that, uh, you know, he doesn't believe in the Force. Hogan religions. He doesn't believe in all that. But here he is in Force Awakens in almost the same area, the Falcon, telling Finn and telling Rey it's true. All of it. The Jedi, Dark Side, the Mists, the Legends. It's all true. It's a great moment. It's a great scene. It devolves a little bit. Everyone knows I'm not a fan of the Wrath Tars, but I'll take it. I'll take the Wrath Tars just to have that scene. It played out well, and that first moment of them rolling in, it's great. Will you tell them Han Solo stole back the Millennium Falcon? Big pop in the theater when that happened. It's a great sequence, and it lived up to the expectations that were huge, because really, they were about 30 years in the making. Number 45, we're going back to the prequels. The opening moments, the opening moments of Revenge of the Sith. That's right. I like that crawl, war, capital letters. I like the music. Go listen and go watch the first six minutes of Revenge of the Sith. Now, there's some things you might want to say aren't great. Some of the dialogue with Anakin and Obi-Wan. The buzz droids were maybe more cute than menacing, though they did kill R4. Rest in peace, Obi-Wan's droid R4. And there's a moment that I've never really liked where Anakin shoots the uh, the, the command ship the Grievous was holding uh, Palpatine on, and he shoots it from the outside and somehow manages to destroy the shield that would keep them from getting inside. A weird moment, but you know what? I'm okay with all that, because the first six minutes of that film Speak to, again, that young kid in me. 
that loved Star Wars, that played Star Wars, that had the figures and had the ships and would reenact battles and would daydream about battles. We got some great dogfights in the original trilogy. I love the stuff in Jedi. It's a great, massive space battle. We didn't really get that in Phantom Menace, unless you want to count little Annie taking out the Trade Federation ship. But it was smaller scale. Attack of Clones, I mentioned we got the good battle, but it was on the ground. Force Awakens, excuse me, Revenge of the Sith. And well, Force Awakens, we got its Starkiller base. It was okay, but it wasn't even really in space. It got dark, but it didn't feel like a space battle to me. The Battle of Coruscant is big. It's bigger than the movie even captures. But the opening moments with that music, the pounding drums, Anakin and Obi-Wan starfighters, Jedi starfighters flying over the Republic ship, and they go over the hull, and they kind of flip up and then flip down into a giant battle. There's cruisers and spaceships exploding. There's uh, the clones are, are flying too, and they get the lock-ass foils on attack position. There's some death. Like I said, R4 goes. R4 is with us. He was with us for Attack of the Clones. He was Obi-Wan's astromech. He gets his head ripped off by some buzz droids. And Clone Starfighter explodes. And a clone goes flying across. Just in space, into nothingness. You don't see that kind of death in Star Wars a lot. But it was there. And they're flying. The buzz droids are taking out Obi-Wan. Anakin gets to show his wares as a pilot, which, hey, is something we, you know, needed to see because he was one of the greatest pilots around. He was the greatest pilot Obi-Wan ever saw. It would make sense, and this shows us. It's a good moment. Say what you will about the rest of the prequels, the rest of Revenge of the Sith, and then they'll show up again here on this list. But I ask you, please go back and revisit that moment. Revisit the first six minutes of Sith. It feels like Star Wars. It feels like a big battle. The type of battle we would have wanted if we were writing our own prequels about the Clone Wars and the Republic and the rising threat of the Separatist-turned-Empire. We, we would have wanted that. We actually did get it. It's a great moment. Number 44, the Poe-Finn escape scene in The Force Awakens. Poe is trapped. He's captured. He gets interrogated by Ren. Things aren't looking good. And quickly, the story moves fast. I'll give you that. Finn needs the pilot to escape. And Finn decides this is his opportunity. Whips smart dialogue, fast dialogue, crackling dialogue, fun stuff, adventure. Poe's character is really defined. Finn's character as it stands now, a guy who needs help to get out, needs help in certain situations and is still forming as a person because at that point he's just a, a, a number basically and we get we get to we get to see his name born i love it it was it was the moment of force awakens there was stuff uh in the opening with lor santeca and, and poe dameron and, and the uh, kylo ren stopping poe's laser blast the the um the, the dialogue with poe was funny uh, you know the who talks you talk i talk uh trouble understanding you with that mask i love that stuff but the first time i felt like ah we're in a star wars movie and we're having fun and it looks like star wars and it feels like star wars was the poe finn escape scene it's great i hope we have more of that between those two that relationship as it grows into uh you know wherever it grows but it's uh very fun it was great stuff it was very star wars and it's number 44 on my list
Number 43, the speeder bike sequence in Return of the Jedi. It's no secret I love biker scouts. Just love them. Love the way they look. I love the Endor stuff. Over the years, as I've grown older and I say I don't like Jedi as much as I did as a kid, eh, there's probably some truth to that, but it's probably my, my brain getting too analytical and getting in my way. I love Jedi as a kid. One of the things I loved. I love Force stuff. I always, I love, personally, I love rain. I grew up in the central coast of California in Pismo Beach area. And uh, we, got some, we got some pine trees on our beaches there. My, our beaches are cold. I like cold weather. And there was something about the forest moon of Endor uh, and the fact that it was a real place, the Redwoods, uh, I've always been intrigued by. And therefore, it's something about the speeder bike sequence. I loved it. I love the sounds, the sounds of the speeder bikes racing through. Uh, the whole sequence makes me dizzy. Um, I can't, even I'm, I'll play on Battlefront now, I'll get on a speeder bike and try to relive a crash. I crash immediately. Um, there was something so dangerous about that sequence as a kid watching it, thinking that it was real or trying to put myself into that real situation. Uh, I just loved it. I was mesmerized by it. And I love those sounds. And I love those biker scouts. And I even love when those Ewoks ride those speeder bikes. It's also um, probably still one of the best sequences in all of Star Wars. The technology's a little better now, and you can do better things, and we'll see what's to come in the other movies. And uh, even the prequels, the pod race, and all that kind of stuff, try to capture that kind of thing. There was something about that speeder bike sequence. It's absolutely one of my favorites in all of Star Wars. Staying on Endor, number 42 on my list is the Ewok theme song. All right. I've been a little harsh on the Ewoks. Jennifer Landa can accept my apologies. Hopefully, she'll accept my apologies. I gotta admit something, guys. Of all the great music in Star Wars, and oh, there is a lot more to come on that, there's something about the Ewok theme that I love. Still, sometimes to this day, I'll hum it to myself. I'll be driving along, apropos of nothing. And I'll start going, It's so perfect for the Ewoks. Hate them? Fine. I don't hate them. I don't love them. But they're a part of Star Wars, and that theme is definitely... Definitely fitting for the Ewoks. It's fun. It's bright. Just like them little Ewoks. I could try to tell you I don't like it. I could try to lie to you and say it's it's not one of my favorite things, but it is absolutely one of the 50 things I love about Star Wars. Number 41, Revenge of the Sith again. Vader, newly christened Darth Vader. So it's still, it looks like Anakin. It's still Anakin Skywalker, but he has a new name and a new purpose. I love the shot and the little moment of him leading the 501st, Vader's fist, into the Jedi Temple. Order 66 has happened. It's ongoing. There's death everywhere. And yeah, you can counteract this and say Vader shouldn't have been the one to kill all the younglings. But hey, you know what? Someone had to. Might as well have been Anakin. But that's not part of this. It's just that little moment. It is a great Star Wars shot. I think you guys know what I mean when I say Star Wars moment or Star Wars shot. There's something great about the marching boots of the 501st coming up the stairs to the Jedi Temple 
with Anakin Skywalker turned Darth Vader leaning, leading them in. It's menacing. It's dark. You could almost hear the Imperial March in your head. Maybe even in Anakin's head. Love that moment. Number 40. Luke's green lightsaber. I'm happy that they're Star Wars fans of many generations and of many different ages. But I gotta say, I feel for you a little bit that you didn't get to experience Luke's green lightsaber when it first hit the scene. Truth be told, I was a year or two too young to fully appreciate it. There's people just a year or two older than me or beyond who really felt the impact of, whoa, Luke's got a green lightsaber? I thought they were blue and red. But even though I didn't know the full impact, there was something about Luke's green lightsaber that got me early. And then in learning more and watching more Star Wars, realizing the importance of it, I love it. It's part of what completes that outfit. It's part of why I think Jedi Luke remains one of the more popular figures and collectibles. I'm staring up at my Black Series Jedi Luke right now, and it's one of my favorite things in my collection. On Jedi Alliance, we went through the, the figures, and that we did a lot of different figure fights. When we actually talked about our favorite figures, that Jedi Luke came up all the time. And yeah, it's cool he's not all black, and yeah, it's cool he's got the black glove, but there's something about that bright green lightsaber that resonates. I hope we get to see it again. Number 39, we're going to the comics on this top 50 things I love about Star Wars list. We're going to the moment, speaking of Luke Skywalker, where Darth Vader learns he has a son from Boba Fett. Star Wars, Darth Vader 6, and Star Wars number 6. They did a great job with these two stories kind of interconnecting from the two comic series. And Vader was on a mission to find the kid who had caused some problems and took down the first Death Star, but he didn't quite know. He knew the Force was strong, but he didn't quite know. And that was the beginning, the driving force behind the first few issues of the Darth Vader run. And it intersected with the regular mainline story in the Star Wars Marvel comics. So in one version, you see Boba Fett talking to Vader apologizing, kind of. He says, I lost him because he was supposed to get this kid. And he goes to Tatooine and gets in a fight with Luke. He says, I lost him. Vader says, that is most disappointing. Vet says, he got lucky. Vader says, did you bring me anything of value, bounty hunter? Vet says, not much, just his name. Skywalker. Boba Fett walks away. We're done here then. Now, one version, the Star Wars version, that's kind of the scene. Vader just sits there silently staring out, kind of scrunches up his fists, cracks a window on the Star Destroyer he's standing on as he looks out at part of the Imperial fleet. It was a cool moment. But it was in the Vader, Darth Vader issue 6 version, that they put more in. And as he's sitting there silently and Fett walks away, you actually go to flashbacks from the prequels. There's Padme telling him he's pregnant. You see Anakin. 
Then it goes back to Vader, and he's getting more angry. Present-day Vader. Then it goes back to the end of Sith. Where is Padme? Is she safe? Is she all right? And the Emperor says, I'm afraid she died. Seems in your anger, you killed her. Vader's getting mad. And he uses the Force. He's got so much anger that the whole area that he's standing in on the cruiser starts to crack and break and smoke. So angry. Flashbacks to Padme. Padme dying. The trench run in A New Hope. Him on the uh, coming, bearing down on the X-Wing, realizing that that person had force. Then it flashes to a little moment of interaction that he and Luke had earlier in the Star Wars comic series. Vader realizes, as he says out loud, I have a son. It was the first time, now officially in canon, that we got to see the moment that Darth Vader realizes he has a son. It was powerful. It was well done. And why I sometimes can, eh, not criticize, but point out that some of the Marvel stuff in the comics isn't as good as uh, I'd like it to be, or it's weirder than I'd like it to be, but that's just my opinion on it. I hope you all enjoy it. If you do, you do. But there is that moment, and there's other moments in these comics, but that particular moment is worth it all. If you can expand on the canon and expand on the story in that kind of way, in a beautiful, dark bittersweet type of moment it's great the type of thing where i read it the first time closed that book just kind of had a moment to go wow love this stuff check it out check it out number 38 sticking with vader the imperial march enough said right probably arguably the most noticeable and recognizable piece of music in the star wars galaxy right didn't even appear till Empire. It's, it's Vader's theme, but it's the Imperial March. Not since the uh, golden days of theater in the 1800s has a villain had a better, better theme as he uh, enters the stage. It's ringtones. It's everywhere. It's on T-shirts, even. The Imperial March is what it is. Great. Number 37, Escape from Jabba, Return of the Jedi. I've heard some people say recently, as, a, uh, as the backlash against Jedi not grows, but becomes more present at times, that, hey, the whole opening sequence with Jabba is great. It almost feels like another movie. I can agree with that. I can understand that. You know, if Harrison Ford had not come back to the series, would we have had that sequence? Would we have needed that sequence? I don't know. But he did, and I'm glad he did, for a lot of reasons. One of them being the escape from Jabba's palace. It was my first experience with Star Wars in the theater. It was that opening for Turn the Jedi, and it was a brave new world for me to enter in as a young kid. I had no idea what was going on. I was trying to piece it together. I couldn't understand why that ghost vision of the dude in the black, who had later learned to have a green lightsaber, why he was giving his friends the droids to the hands of Jabba. They didn't understand why that one guy was frozen. And the other dude who was in a mask and looked to be hiding. Black guy learned, learned his name was Lando. What was he there for? And then Chewbacca shows up. I've heard that guy. I knew that guy going in. Chewbacca, he was a good guy, but now he's captured. And then the bounty hunter's really the princess. I was seven years old. And I was trying to figure it out. Then it all came together. 
In the battle, they escape over the Dune Sea. The Sarlacc Pit, the original version of the Sarlacc Pit. The death of Boba Fett, which at the time I didn't realize was kind of a waste of a great character. But it's still cool. I even liked the burp. Later, I would realize that that was a precursor of things to come. A harbinger of things to come in the prequels, if you will. But that whole sequence... That whole sequence is probably, more than anything, question mark, what pulled me into the Star Wars universe. First, was it 17 minutes of the movie, roughly? Someone tell me. That locked me in as a seven-year-old in the theater. It was amazing. And I would reenact that scene more than any other scene on the playground. We are fortunate enough to have a, uh, a playground, a big... Uh, slide kind of thing. It was made out of wood. The slide was made out of hard, just metal sheets on pieces of wood. Later, all this would be replaced by nice, safe plastic toys and, and play sets. But we had to climb up it. It looked like a skiff. Me and my friends would ad nauseum, man. We'd go out there and just reenact the escape from Jabba's palace. And you escape over the Sarlacc pit. I love it. It's still exciting. And it's still fun. Number 36. Princess Leia recalling. How tight Darth Vader held her shoulder as he made her watch Alderaan being destroyed. And this is described in the novel Bloodline. All this new canon. I love it. It's great. Because there's so much of it, you're going to have some hits. You're going to have some misses. You're going to have some mid-range stuff. Like I said, sometimes the comic goes into areas I'm not comfortable with. Sometimes the books aren't as good as I'd want them to be. But they all have great moments, and they're all doing what we as fans want them to do, expand the Star Wars world and expand the Star Wars story and canon. And Bloodline by Claudia Gray does it in a fantastic way with a character that, as I've always said, was a little one-dimensional. Princess Leia. She had personality. She had great moments. Some layers were there, don't get me wrong. But because of the times, and I'm so glad it's changed, and we get, get characters like Rey and hopefully Jyn Erso and others, and much more to come, female characters of weight and value in Star Wars. Princess Leia definitely had the weight and value, but she was a princess in distress, though she, you know, used a blaster to save herself sometimes. But that was the trope. She literally was a princess in distress, and the guys had to go save her. So there was always some layer issues with Princess Leia, and we're getting those kind of filled out now. Bloodline, which is all about Leia, does that in great ways. You can go catch Joseph Scrimshawn's review on it. Go check out the book. I highly recommend it. But there is a moment where she does describe to herself, she's thinking back. She's talking about it at times. Castrofo uh, hates Vader. She's trying to say how much she hates him, too. And she recalls how the man she eventually learned to be her father was standing there with her as she's watching her home planet be destroyed in New Hope. She describes in detail how his grip tightened. And when the novels and the comics and the supplemental material expand on the original movies in that way, I love it. I love crawling up inside those moments and learning learning a different perspective. And you get layers inside track, the perspective of that scene. 
It was her own father. And she talks also about the torture, stuff you didn't see in New Hope. Only hinted at but how Vader tortured her to try to get out information. But that little moment, that little moment added weight. It's a book in 2016, and that little moment where Leia, Leia recalls when Vader tightened his grip on her shoulder as Alderaan blew up in front of her. It, it, it strengthens and adds a layer to a scene from a movie in 1977. I love it. Number 35. Han Solo's scoundrel shrug when in Return of the Jedi, he uh, gets in the ATSD, tells the Imperials, and it's all over, man. The Rebels are fleeing in the wilderness. We need some help. Huh? How about sending some guys out here? And the Rebels come out there, excuse me, the Imperials come out there, and they find Han Solo giving him a shrug like, ha, sorry, I had to capture you. It is a pure Han Solo moment. It is Han Solo in a nutshell. I love that scene. And I love that moment. Number 34, Yoda revealing himself as Yoda while talking to Obi-Wan in front of Luke in Empire Strikes Back. When Empire first came out, Yoda was a new character, obviously. The backstory wasn't there. So the audience had to figure it out for themselves. So when this little green puppet that sounded vaguely like a Muppet that we've heard before comes around and starts... Rifling through Luke's kits. And he starts uh, poking at R2. You probably at the time didn't know what you were thinking. Didn't know what you were seeing. You didn't have the coverage that we had. You might have seen him on a poster maybe or a press shot and think, all right, this is an important character. But it isn't like now where you've been like, Frank Oz has signed on for Star Wars 2 to betray the voice of a Muppet puppet character. Um... I'm glad that back then that wasn't the way it was. So the reveal of Yoda came as probably a surprise to a lot of people in the theater, and it kind of came as a surprise to me. I was young enough to... I saw I saw Empire after Jedi, so I knew who Yoda was, but to see it again, to see it play out, it was kind of confusing. And again, I'm young, seven or eight. So you're like, why, why does Luke not know immediately that's Yoda? Now that reveal, where Luke's getting frustrated... He's having trouble eating that disgusting soup. He's got snakes in the bowl as he's trying to eat. He's in little Yoda's hut, and he bangs his head, and he's just getting frustrated, and he's impatient, and he's angry. And Yoda kind of goes into a corner and talks what he thinks at first to himself. But then you realize he's talking to Obi-Wan. And the realization comes over Luke's face. It speaks again to a greater story. It speaks to the in-narrative mythology and how it's not just about the rebels and the Empire. It's not just about Han, Luke, and Leia versus Darth Vader. It's, it's more, and it's bigger. It gives us a peek at the bigger story. And as a young fan, it was spectacular. And when Obi-Wan, the ghost version of Obi-Wan, who's probably hashtag ghost-sitting at this point, says, hey, so was I. If you remember Yoda. And yeah, he doesn't mention Qui-Gon Jinn. It is what it is. But I love that. It speaks to something bigger. Yoda kind of goes menacing in a way. This is the moment of, oh, I'm not afraid. Oh, you will be. You will be. It's a different kind of Yoda. And that reveal. Some weight to it. They got from a puppet on a set. It's great. 
Number 33, we return to Revenge of the Sith. I mentioned it earlier, but it is the entire sequence of Order 66. There's something about it. Even if I was watching Sith in the theater for the first time, and I knew in my head it was better than Clones and Phantom Menace, but still not quite there. The Order 66 sequence still got me. And it still gets me. Caddy Mundy, Plo Koon, Ayla Secura, all these Jedi dying. Kind of sometimes wish the movie was... Uh, covered that a little bit better, I guess I should say. That We spent more time with these Jedi before they went. We had heard about this. We heard about the Empire and the Emperor hunting down and destroying and wiping out all the Jedi. The fact that it happened in one kind of seeping, sweeping sequence and took everyone by surprise, it wasn't my favorite decision. But there's something about the sequence, which includes, of course, the music. Something about it. By the time Plo Koon is blown out of the sky and his ship goes crashing, there's something about it, man. And that moment on Magito, when Kiedemundi is leading the clones ahead and charge, and he hears, he hears the footsteps stop, Here's the gun's lock, and he turns around and realizes he's about to be killed by the very men he was leading in the battle. It's a good moment. It's a sad moment. It's a deeper moment than I think a lot of people want to give credit to that movie. Order 66. Order 66 has some resonance. It's one of my favorite moments from Star Wars. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Number 32, the sound of a lightsaber igniting. Do I need to explain this any more than it is? It's the sound of a lightsaber igniting. It's a great sound. It's an amazing sound. 
The crackle of a lightsaber when they hit. That's why I have I have toy lightsabers. I've had one for twenty years. I don't think I've I don't think I've changed the batteries, but I still play with it. I still grab it. It's like a thinking stick. Just grab it, make that sound. It is a signature sound of Star Wars. Number thirty-one. Kylo Ren failing to interrogate Rey. Force Awakens. It is the scene most notable for Kylo Ren taking off his mask and unveiling his luscious locks for the first time. But that scene is one of the keys to the new stories. It's one of the keys to that movie. It also includes clues to Rey and her past and her visions of the future. How she dreamed of an island. How could she dream of that when she was stuck on Jakku? How did she know? The Force was calling to her. But it is the moment where Ren fails really big for the first time. It's a moment where he cannot succeed in interrogating and terrorizing Rey. And she starts to find herself as a young Force user. She strikes back. Ren is defeated. It's a great moment. It's a powerful moment. And I love it. Number 30. Padme and Anakin in the rumination scene in Revenge of the Sith. It's about a minute 40 section in Revenge of the Sith. Before Anakin rushes off to maybe help Mace or save Palpatine, he's not sure. But there's something in the air. It's one of the greatest tracks of music in all of Star Wars. Dark and menacing. Screeching. Grating. But in a good way. Listen to that music. It's a different kind of Star Wars track. Padme's staring out of the Jedi Temple. Anakin's staring out at Padme's uh, building, apartment complex, for lack of a better term. Padme knows something's going wrong. Something's dark about to happen. And Anakin is, is debating. He's been told to sit here and wait while Mace and the uh, Kid Fisto and the other Jedi go to arrest Palpatine. He gave him that information, but he also knows Palpatine is the only one that said he, he could save Padme. His ways, his methods, and Anakin in that moment, it could be argued, becomes Darth Vader. Because he breaks the rules and he goes, I still think he didn't know what he was going to do when he got there. I don't think he was going there to kill Mace. I think he was just going there because he knew he had to. Darkness ensues, kills, helps kill Mace, cuts off his arm or the Emperor... Uh, becomes the emperor essentially in that moment. Power, unlimited power. But that moment, in a prequel series that lacked a lot of subtlety, I, I gotta say, the moment there, ruminations, Padme and Anakin staring across the city at each other, the weight of the galaxy on their shoulders. It is, it is a sublime moment. It's one of my favorites. Number 29, Sonic Death Charges, Attack of the Clones. If you listen to me talk Star Wars for a while, you know that is absolutely one of my favorite sounds. It might be my favorite sound in all of Star Wars. Jango Fett, Obi-Wan, Space Battle, Sonic Depth Charges. Look it up. You guys know. One of my favorite sounds. Number 28, the Cyan Ray and Thane Kyrell love affair in the last chapters of Lost Stars. Going back to Claudia Gray's writing. I love this book. It retells the original trilogy from the point of view of other characters. From the point of view of the working man. 
and focuses on this love story. The book was marketed as young adult, and I get it, and this love story, I guess, fulfills that. But I don't know why you'd just call it that. It is the best of the new Star Wars canon. And their love, their love story and the story they tell, uh, retelling of the original trilogy and more, and the end of that love affair in the book as we know it, will there be more? We'll find out. The Battle of Jakku, which ties in The Force Awakens, Battlefront, and all these uh, parts of new canon. It's great. It's sweeping. And that's what Star Wars love affairs should be. Check it out if you have not read Lost Stars. Number 27, Princess Leia on Hoth. All right. Princess Leia in the steel bikini, a.k.a. Slave Leia, and I know we don't want to call her that anymore, and I'm fine with that. Princess Leia in the steel bikini is, without a doubt, the first part of a sexual awakening for an entire generation of Star Wars fans. All right? It is what it is. It's become something else. It's become an over-cosplayed uh, character. It's become uh, cliche. It, it elicits eye rolls more than it than elicits uh, any kind of other reaction. But it is what it is. And it was for me. Not just at 7 or 8 as a too young a kid, not knowing what I'm thinking, but even as 10, 11, 12 watching the movie, it's like, ah, Princess Leia in this stupid bikini's hot. But I gotta say, and I know I'm not alone with this, Mark Riley. Schmoes, no, Collider. He's always agreed with me on this one. My favorite Princess Leia was Princess Leia on Hoth, covered almost head to toe in white snow gear, but her hair up, ready for action. Blaster in hand, she's running around. Well, actually, that's on Battlefront. But she's running around in the movie, still in command, still telling people to evacuate while she stays behind, not ready to give up her secret base, not ready to see her troops hurt or killed before her I that's where I fell in love with Princess Leia a lady of action a commander of action I didn't need no steel bikini you can dress her head to toe I was attracted to the princess in control Han didn't save her because she needed saving an empire in those moments he knew he had to go back and get her because she was going to go down with the ship. Something great about that. Something downright sexy about that. Princess Leia on Hoth. It's my favorite Princess Leia. Number 26, BB-8, as in BB Great. Force Awakens had a lot of pressure on it. That is an understatement. But BB-8 might have had the most pressure on him because of a character named Judge Jar Binks. Binks, of course, introduced infamously now in 1999's The Phantom Menace as the comic relief, the thing kids would love, and in a way it did. But Piosa, it did not work. It helped, it helped launch poor Jar Jar, poor Ahmed Best, helped launch a movement against the prequels. So when BB-8 shows up in marketing, and teasers, figures, and toys, there was potential that this new droid, who's essentially tasked to replace both C-3PO and R2-D2, though they're in the movie, it clearly was BB-8 in the forefront of the droids in that movie. And he's got comedy. He's got a little bit of that role to play, too. Could have gone horribly wrong. Could have been disastrous. But instead, it was a home run. 
Some of the best acting came from BB-8 in Force Awakens. Some of the best moments are with BB-8. And an entire Star Wars fandom rose up and said, we accept you, BB-8. And therefore, I think they contributed a lot to what we felt for The Force Awakens. BB-8, welcome to the family. Number 25, we're halfway through. This is a long one, folks. Pause and come back. Number 25, the door opening to reveal Darth Maul and Phantom Menace. Yep, I had to include something from Phantom Menace, right? That's pretty easy. There's other moments. I like the fight at the end. I like that moment where Anakin, excuse me, uh, Obi-Wan has to wait for the power shield to move out of the way so he can go avenge his now fallen master. It's great stuff. I even like the stuff before that where Qui-Gon's meditating while he's waiting for the shield to get it, go away and Maul's pacing. I like Maul. Uh, I'm not as maybe as much as other people or I think I may be over him, but I've, I've, I've been mauled out a little bit, I admit. But I can't. I can't overlook that that moment in Phantom Menace with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Padme and Panaka and the, uh, the Naboo Royal Guard or Volunteer Force, whatever they are, getting freed. They're heading towards the battle. They're heading back into the fray. The doors open. The double doors open, and there is Darth Maul standing there. And Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon say, we'll handle this. You guys go the other way. It's a great moment. It's one of the greatest, greatest moments for any villain in Star Wars. And it's probably why we love Darth Maul so much. Number 24, the rebel troops seeing the approaching Adats in Empire Strike Strikes Back. The all-terrain armored transports, AT-ATs. I'll call them Adats to the day I die. I've said it before on Jedi Lions. I've talked about it. It is absolutely one of my favorite moments when the uh, rebel officer is looking through his binoculars. They're on there getting ready to defend the base. They know the Empire's approaching. And what's approaching? They hear some rumblings. They feel some rumblings. And he looks through and he sees that big foot of the walker. And he scans up to see this machine-like monster, or this monster-like machine, I should say, approaching. It's menacing. It's scary. It gives me chills when you put yourself into that moment as a fan into the story. And then he pants back, and there's five of them. The Empire is approaching from the North Ridge, and it's not looking good for the Rebels. One of my favorite moments, and it captures what it means to be in the Rebel Army. You're always outgunned. You're always in peril. Because the Empire is big and vast and powerful. And you're just a pitiful little Rebel Alliance. And that moment is definitely where you feel that. Number 23. Lock S foils into attack position. I was thinking about Wedge Antilles. One of my favorite side characters in Star Wars, of course. Probably yours, too. Who doesn't love Wedge? And there's something about the moment in Return of the Jedi when Wedge gets to call out the order of lock-ass foils in attack position. Something Red Leader had called out in New Hope. And then when it's called back again, and they bring it back again in Revenge of the Sith in the opening sequence of the, of the movie I mentioned, uh, one of the clones gets to say, uh, I think he actually says set S foils in attack position. There's something about those S foils. We love them in Force Awakens, too. Those X-Wings split open. Clunk. And the S-Foils are locked. As a fan, I don't even know to this day what that really means. What does it mean to lock your S-Foils into acquisition? I don't know. It just means go time for me. 
and I love hearing it. I love saying it. Sometimes I'm in my car getting on the freeway and friends are in the car and I'll be like, hey, we're locking S-Foils in attack position. We're going. So I love that moment. Number 22, the Imperial officers, Piet, Veers, Moff, Jer, Gerard, my favorite, Moti, Tag, Ozzel. There's something about those Imperial officers. Some a little haphazard, some a little hapless, and some on it. Piet was on it. He knew. He was a, he was a climber. Veers, he knew what to do. Veers, Veers didn't mess around. Ozzel, Moti, Tag. Well, they're from a group of Imperial officers who probably still looked at, his, at Vader as uh, the Emperor's lapdog. There's something about those Imperial officers, man. It's, a fun, it's like a little band. It's a little band. I love them. Uh, Moff Jar Gerard I've always liked because uh, uh, something about him. He's so arrogant. He's so in control, but he's not compared to Vader and the Emperor. I just loved it. I'd want to be an Imperial officer. I'd go to the Imperial Academy and, and skip Stormtrooper school and try to go straight from there. What, what would you be? Would you be a Piet? Would you be an Ozzel? What would you be? Number 21, it's a weird little moment, but it's one of my favorite Star Wars moments. The ATST blowing up the trees in Return of the Jedi. There's a moment, and I'm not alone. I've had this discussion with fans growing up and fans now. There's a moment in the Battle of Endor where... The tide is, tide is not turning for our heroes, and things are dark. Up in space, the space battle's not going good because it's a trap. And down below, it's not going good because the Empire has these powerful machines. The rebels are outgunned, and the Ewoks are not yet taking control of the battle. And an ATSD starts blasting, and it hits some of the trees on Endor. And one just explodes. <laughs> Branches everywhere. The tree splits apart. And right on that, it cuts back to the space battle. Things aren't going great up there either. For whatever reason, I just always have loved that moment and remembered that moment. I used to have a friend in high school, Mark, would always talk to me about that. You know, he'd say, you know, I love that moment. There's something about that tree exploding. I'd be like, I know. He'd be like, I know. And we'd be Star Wars nerds together as friends forever. I love that moment. It's those little moments sometimes that just grab you. Number 20, I mentioned it earlier when I talked about the speeder bikes, the Biker Scouts. They're high on the list. You're saying, Ken, the Biker Scouts are higher than you, uh, than Yoda revealing himself uh, in front of Luke? Vader learning he has a son? Yeah, I'll tell you why. Uh, when you're watching Star Wars and you got the Stormtroopers, and yeah, there's Sand Troopers and there's Snow Troopers, and there's di- those are technically different classes of Stormtroopers. They're kind of all the same to you. And then along comes Return of the Jedi, or even later on in Return of the Jedi, and you go to this new planet, and they've got these cool speeder bikes, which were just cool, especially when you rode your bike around the neighborhood. You, you wish it was a speeder bike. And you got these stormtroopers look different. And then you get the figures, and you find out, well, they are different. They're biker scouts. They're a different class. And there was something about it I liked that I don't know. When I, when I worked in a business where I had to wear a uniform to work... I had my class A's, my class B's, and then I had more of a a, a, a BDU, a battle dress uniform based uniform. I, I, I used to always call those. I used to be like that. That's me turned into a biker scout. For some reason, I like I like my militaries to have different options, and different classes of warriors. And I was always intrigued by the biker scouts, and I still to this day collect biker scouts. Uh, I have figures of them. I have uh, the the Black Series 
speeder bike with the biker scout on it, the pops, it doesn't doesn't matter. I don't I don't cosplay, but if I did, I'd be a biker scout or maybe one other option we'll discuss later. But I love the biker scouts. Currently in Battlefront, I'm playing as a biker scout. And though there's shadow troopers and other things I can probably buy after that with my credits, I think I'm going to stick as a biker scout. In the same vein, number 19 on the things, the top 50 things I love about Star Wars, it's the Y-Wings. Yep, that's right. Team Y-Wing to the end. The story goes, for those who have not heard it or for those who don't remember or care not to remember, I wasn't a well-to-do child growing up. I had a good life, but it was a simple life. So I had a lot of Star Wars figures, but not a lot of Star Wars vehicles. My parents just could afford, couldn't afford them. My allowance wasn't that great, and there's a lot of things to buy in the 80s. G.I. Joe, Transformer, comic books, GoBots even. There's Mask. There's a lot of things to buy in the 80s. So I couldn't save up that allowance a lot to buy the Star Wars figures like my friends had. I didn't have an X-Wing. I didn't have a TIE Fighter. I didn't have Luke's Sandspeeder. But I did have a Y-Wing. It was a Christmas gift of 83. Probably Christmas of 83. Yeah, that would be accurate, right? I still have a picture. An actual printed out picture. Developed film of the box of the Y-Wing on the day I got it. And it's just a picture of the Y-Wing. I just It's just there. I think you maybe see my hand or something, but it's like, yeah, look at this. Big Star Wars toy. I still have that Y-Wing. It's a little beat up. It's a little broken. I infamously now, some of you know the story, sold my Star Wars toys at a garage sale in the late 80s, about 86, 87. Gone are the, my entire collection of original Kenner Star Wars figures, minus two. General Veers, Adat Commander, as it is on the package, and the Death Star Gunner, because they just weren't in the uh, box when I sold the lunch pail of Star Wars characters for like $2, because, wow, that was a huge amount of money. But the Y-Wing had stayed behind in my room with General Veers somehow in the cockpit, and so I realized a year, two years later, I'd made a huge mistake. That Star Wars was not slipping off my radar screen as a young fan. It was still very much there. And then by 1991, Air of the Empire had come out, and it was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely still a big Star Wars fan. Really wish I still had those Star Wars figures. I had the Y-Wing. So I formed a connection to it. And much like I like Biker Scouts because they're a different class of Stormtrooper or different discipline of of being in the Imperial Army, I was fascinated like everyone was with the X-Wings. It's a perfect design for a Starfighter. The X-Wings are great and the standard for all Starfighters, I believe. TIE Fighter's pretty good too, but the X-Wing, that's smooth, man. That's smooth. But there was something about them. They were their new hope. But they really became a little more, uh, you know, apparent in Return of the Jedi. You got A-Wings, you got B-Wings, you got Y-Wings, you got X-Wings. You got different wings. But there's something about that Y-Wing. Because I owned it. I'd see it in the movie. Anytime it pops up, I see it in the movie. Then you find out a little bit more of it. Hey, it's the heavy bomber of the Rebel fleet. It's the workhorse of the Rebel fleet. And there's different versions of it. And then it shows up a little bit elsewhere in uh, Clone Wars, little altered versions, earlier versions. And we were supposed to get a bigger version, like a Y-Wing kind of transport version in Force Awakens that didn't happen. I hope an 8. 
Looks like we might have an A-wing again showing up an eight with Luke. I, I hope an eight. We get a Y-wing of some sort. I need me a Y-wing. I love the Y-wings, and it is absolutely a top 20 thing I love about Star Wars. Number 18, going back to Revenge of the Sith, it shows up a lot on this list as it should. In this moment, number 18, Palpatine talking to Anakin at the Calamari Opera in Sith. This is probably now forever known as the Darth Plagueis the Wise scene. Say what you will about the prequels. And there's a lot to be said. You cannot take away that moment from Revenge of the Sith where Palpatine finally gets his claws on Anakin. He's finally speaking to him on a deep, dark level. And that moment of Anakin saying, how can I, how can I learn these skills? I'm sold, man. And Palpatine's like, hey, not from a Jedi. It was great in the trailer. It was great in the movie. It's got a great soundtrack. Yeah. The music playing in the background may or may not be very similar to the Snoke theme in Force Awakens. Ooh, we'll find out. It's a great scene. I recommend I recommend you all taking in Revenge of the Sith again and putting aside some of the stuff you might not like and really looking to those moments that are pure Star Wars. Palpatine... Seducing Anakin to the dark side of the Force is something we always knew happened. But it was in this very scene that I think it really, really locked in. He really, really got to him. It's important to the Star Wars saga, and it is well played and well executed in that movie. Number 17, Rey calling Luke's lightsaber into her hands before taking on Kylo Ren at the end of The Force Awakens. It's a great moment. Yeah, it's the moment that some of us thought maybe that was Luke showing up. And it's reminiscent, so nicely shot, reminiscent of Luke calling the lightsaber an empire. It's his blade, that blade from Empire, in the snow. And it starts to move, it starts to shake. And even in the theater, when I, I knew, I knew, I knew deep down inside, the Force was telling me that this was Rey, this was her moment, she was going to be calling that lightsaber. As Kylo Ren reached forward and he couldn't quite get it, and the blade was moving and the blade was shaking, and all of us fans are saying, that looks like Empire. Here's the hero's moment for Luke Skywalker. That lightsaber zipped across the sky, zipped past Kylo Ren, and into the hand of Rey. And she was cemented as our new hero. That lightsaber fight is a great one. I think there's going to be more to come. I think Ray had a little bit of rookie luck. I think Ren was hurt, damaged, disoriented, disorganized, angry, lost, sad. And that's why she was able to essentially defeat him in that moment. Scarring him for life, inside and out. I think it was a rookie moment. Sometimes rookies come up and they hit a home run their first at bat. And I think that happened with Ray. And I think eight will be about her continued training and maybe some setbacks. But that's what's to come. But in that moment, it is everything we needed it to be. Ray is our hero. And that was the moment. We all knew it. Number 16, Darth Vader recalling Ahsoka Tano in the book Lords of the Sith by Paul S. Kemp. The Clone Wars turned into a fan favorite of a cartoon, but it started a little rough. People weren't as open to it. Number one, a very successful, uh, popular version of the Clone Wars cartoon was already out. It had a cult following already. The Samurai Jack Stylings. 
So this new series came out, and then the movie hit the theaters, and it didn't hit. And it's like, here we go again. And then you had this character Snips, this young girl, young preteen Padawan, hanging around with Anakin. And I was like, where was that character? How can you justify that this character was gone by Revenge, uh, Revenge of the Sith? That you're, we're to believe that when Revenge of the Sith starts, that Ahsoka Tano, Snips, has been part of Anakin's life and Obi-Wan's life and everyone's life, and she's gone? The story of Ahsoka Tano was one of my favorites. The growth, the maturation, and the direction of that character. It carries weight, and it's important. Ahsoka Tano is absolutely one of my favorite characters. But even I... I've always kind of struggled. How do you connect these dots? How does the man and the creature and the machine who is Darth Vader have no memories and not deal with Ahsoka Tano? For those of you who haven't watched the Clone Wars cartoon, check it out. Check, check out the end series of her, her and her ending. And of course, she appears back in Rebels. And she may have met her end. We don't know. The end of Rebels was great this season, season two of Rebels. Very Ahsoka heavy, and it, and it dealt with Vader and Ahsoka. Master and Padawan. Master and Apprentice. And it dealt. And there was some stuff early on in Rebels. What is Ahsoka, Vader, each of them sensing, each of them kind of feeling, uh-oh. I think that's, uh, that's a presence of someone I knew. But there's a moment earlier on where it really comes together and it really starts to make sense. And for me as a fan, I can accept what's going on in Rebels and I can now start to accept that she was a memory by the end of Revenge of the Sith and definitely by the beginning of New Hope. And it is in the novel Lords of the Sith by Paul S. Kemp, who, who does such an amazing job. It's a great book. And he does such an amazing job writing Vader and the Emperor. But there is a moment where Vader, who is still learning, he's still fresh as Darth Vader. He's still learning how to wear that cape and mask. And the Emperor is still testing him and still teaching him and still growing him and still taunting him. And there's still a weird relationship between them. Master and apprentice, Emperor, to Vader. But Vader is trying hard to suppress his past and suppress what he once was. He's trying to become machine more than man. And in doing so, in Lords of the Sith, he actually fully recalls, gets to the point where he, he, he recalls Ahsoka Tano. They even use the nickname Snips, which is such a, uh, you know, it was a childish, youth-oriented nickname for the early seasons of, of Clone Wars. And sometimes rubbed people the wrong way. It, it did me. She's grown into being one of my favorite characters, but initially I was like, this little wisecracking teenager. I don't need this in my Star Wars. Grumpy, grumpy, grumpy. I should learn those lessons. But there it is in Lords of the Sith. It bridges that gap. It bridges that, that hole in the story for me. It does it in a great way. It's one of my favorite moments. Again, it's when those new novels and the new comic books and the new shows fill in the blanks, tell the stories, and they tell them in a great way that fits so well into the larger Star Wars saga. And that's one of those moments. Lords of the Sith, Paul S. Kemp, check it out. Number 15, 
Going back to something simple, Emperor's Royal Guards. I love the Biker Scouts. That is now on record. But the Emperor's Royal Guards are sleek and cool. They reminded me growing up of the Crimson Guard in G.I. Joe and Cobra. They were Cobra Commander's kind of elite guard. They were all red, except for their mask. And there was an interesting story to them in the comic books. They were all supposed to kind of be the same. They got plastic surgery to look the same. And there was this kind of interchangeable, all-for-one, mysterious thing to the Crimson Guards. And because of the connection of the all-red to the all-red, it carried over to me as a fan to the Emperor's Royal Guards. And they're still mystery to me. They're still mysterious to me, I should say. Uh, and there's in, in some of the legends, I understand. Some of you have told me, and eh, some of the legends, check this story out. There's a little bit more to the Royal Guards, and there was different versions, and they got, they got kind of more crazy as they, as they went along. Fully aware of that. I don't know the details of it. Don't need to know. I'm staying in canon here. Oh, that word, in canon. The Emperor's Royal Guards are just out and out cool. And when they showed up in Phantom Menace in blue... And they were kind of Palpatine's uh, personal guard. I got, I got giddy. I still kind of get giddy. It's like, the st- oh, that's the start of what the Emperor would have, would have initially put into place. His own little team, his King's Guard, so to speak. The Emperor's Royal Guards are mystery personified to me. And I love them. And the fact that they show up in the Rogue One trailer opens up a whole world of speculation for that little scene. And just made me go, yes. It was a fist-pumping nerd moment. We get some more Emperor's Royal Guards. And they show up again. And in the Lando comic, you actually get to uh, learn a little bit more about them. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of dark. And, and the Lords of the Sith, they're prominent. The Emperor's Royal Guards are prominent. And you get to hear a little more. and get to read a little more. I love them. And I don't cosplay. Like I said, Biker Scots... I dress up as one, but I think one day I'd like to walk around dressed as an emperor's royal guard. Number 14, on the top 50 things I love about Star Wars, the Han and Leia love story in Empire Strikes Back. All the scenes, all the moments, the fighting, the I could use, he could use a good kiss, all those moments, the I love you, I know, being the end of that storyline. The Han and Leia love story. I talk about the Sina Ray and Than Kyrell love affair from Lost Stars, sweeping. And that's what Star Wars needs. There was something about the Han and Leia love story that was both sweeping but small and intimate. To me, it's what all action, adventure, sci-fi, fantasy love stories should be judged against. Empire Strikes Back, it played out so well. Irving Kirshner did such a great job. And I love uh, the interviews of the late Irving Kirshner uh, talking about how... What he had to work with in Empire. He didn't have big, giant space battles. He had character stuff. He had love stories. And even then, he couldn't do all the smooching, as he said. He had to find it in the moments. He had to find it in the humor. And uh, Han and Leia playfully, lovingly bickering, which seemed to have carried out through all out their relationships, we learned in Force Awakens. And it was who they were. I would have liked to have known that at some point they'd they'd stopped a lot of that bickering, but hey, some couples never do. But going back to Empire, watching their love story play out, which again, from a fan point of view and from a technical filmmaking point of view, came after Star Wars. And though it made sense, hey, Han and, and, and Princess would get together. At the time, we didn't know Luke. We didn't know Luke was the brother. All right? We didn't know that. Some of us might have been rooting for Luke. 
A nice little farm boy. Let him. He cares. Let him get the princess. Not that smuggler. Not that scoundrel. But it makes sense. And it built on the Star Wars New Hope story so well. And it's absolutely one of the reasons the Star Wars saga was able to continue to grow. These real character moments. And it's what we measured like the prequels against. The, the Anakin Padme stuff didn't work for a lot of people because of the dialogue, because of direction, all that stuff. Yeah, 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 sure. But it was because it just didn't lack the... It lacked, and it didn't have the spark and the realistic nature, the small, intimate moments that Han and Leia had specifically in Empire. The stuff in Jedi was okay, but it was kind of a retread for me. That's where Jedi kind of breaks down as you get older. Her saying, I know, back to him. Got it. Cute. Her rescuing him in uh, Jabba's palace is great stuff. It's part of that great sequence. Eh, but even that moment where, who, who are you? Oh, I'm someone who loves you. Great. Sweet. It's good stuff. It's part of Star Wars, that I, and I love it. But you have to go back to Empire to get the true nature and the true perfect execution of this small, intimate love story set against this giant, sweeping saga. Number 13, staying on Empire, let's go to Hoth. The entire Hoth sequence. If I loved the Jabba sequence, I gotta mention the Hoth sequence, and it's got to be higher. The Hoth sequence, the walkers, the battle, the snow, again, I like cold weather, the taking down the walkers, the snow speeders, Luke getting uh, lost, uh, the, the, the wampa, I'm talking everything. Hoth, Empire Strikes Back, absolutely some of the best in the Star Wars galaxy. It's why uh, in Force Awakens, I think we all didn't necessarily want more snow because we got it, and we got it in a great way in Hoth. We didn't need it in any other way. I love it. I love those walkers. I wish I was on Hoth. wish I was a... Could I, could I be a snow biker scout with a red cape on Hoth? I don't know. I'm putting it all together. The Hoth sequence is great. And uh, coming off of Star Wars, episode four, and then you start with that new mysterious snow planet, and there's creatures in this big battle, and, and, the, and the rebels lose? That set the tone. Set the tone, and it's great. Number 12, Yoda's theme, It's a Run of Empire. Yoda's theme, there's a lot of great music in Star Wars. We talked about Emperor, Emper, Imperial March. Uh, Luke's theme, which is a Force theme. Leia's theme is great. Duel of the Fates. Ewok theme, I love. The Throne Room. There's a lot of stuff. But I gotta tell you, I don't hear Yoda's theme talked about enough. Listen to it. It is the Force. It is hopeful. It's got an undertone of melancholy. It's got that moment about a minute in. Great stuff. Some of William's best work. But like Yoda, Yoda had that melancholy streak by the time we see him in Empire. And then Jedi, he's on his way out. It goes back to that moment at the end of Revenge of the Sith where Yoda knows he's failed. He couldn't defeat Palpatine and he's got to go into hiding. The deleted scene, it's not even a deleted scene, it's a deleted moment from Sith where he lands on Dagobah, kind of gets out and sighs, and this is going to be his home. It's a great scene. I, I can see why it wasn't in the movie. It's a great little scene, though. There's a melancholy to Yoda. 
sense of failure mixed with the hope of a new purpose. And that is very much in that theme. And there's other, bigger, grander themes in Star Wars. But Yoda's theme, very high on the list. Number 11, Vader revealing himself as Luke's father. Talked about when he learned he was a father. It's historic. It's iconic. It's the greatest twist in movie cinema history. So glad it happened in 1980 and not now when it would have been spoiled, I'm sure. What else can you say that hasn't been said about, no, I am your father? Well played by Hamill. He was acting, of course, against other dialogue, another, uh, another moment revealed. I love that moment. It's historic for a reason. Give it its due. Darth Vader revealing himself as Luke's father. Number 10. We're around the corner of the bend, my friends. Number 10 on the top 50 things I love about Star Wars. The Millennium Falcon. The ship itself. There's a reason that when it showed up in Force Awakens, all right, we'll take the garbage. Whip pan over. And there's the Falcon. The theater I was in, which was full of cynical movie reporters and press, we all cheered. We all clapped for a reason. The Millennium Falcon is just as important as any other character in the Star Wars galaxy. In many ways, it's our home on the go. We all live in the Falcon. We all want to live in the Falcon. It's like the best RV in the galaxy. I'm going to sit down and play some games with Chewbacca. Maybe do some Jedi training. Hide if you need to. The new one apparently has a kitchen area, controversially added, for the benefit of Leia and Han as they do their travels that they wanted to do once they got married. It's the Falcon, man. It's the sounds. It's the look of that clumsy but beautiful ship. How it always breaks down. It's always not quite in best working order. But it somehow gets the job done. The Falcon was featured prominently in The Force Awakens as it should be. And it was done very well. It was done respectfully. They knew. Abrams knew. It wasn't just about Han and Chewie. It was just as much about the Falcon. And I love that Rey has it. I love that she's the one piloting with Chewbacca now at her side. I hope that's not the last we see of the Falcon. I hope it gets to be part of Rey's journey. And I'm sure when we see it again for the first time in the Han Solo uh, standalone film, we'll have a similar reaction. I hope it's done just as well as it was in The Force Awakens. Number nine, Luke Skywalker staring at the twin sons of Tatooine from A New Hope. It is what the core of the Star Wars story is. It's Luke, and it's a boy, and it's him looking out to the galaxy that he is not a part of, but so achingly wants to be. It is part of the Star Wars theme. It's, it's done, again, quite well in Revenge of the Sith when young Luke is given over to Owen Lars, Joel Edgerton, and they kind of, with Amperu there, recreate that scene. And I didn't think that was cheesy. I actually liked it. It got me geeked up for Star Wars again. Well, a lot of times when I finish watching Sith, I immediately put in New Hope because of that final scene of Owen and Beru with young Luke staring out at the twin sons. It reminds me of that iconic scene. And the one in New Hope is, of course, way better, and, it's, and it is what it is, the iconic moment. But it is that moment, because we've all felt that. 
and that is part of why we connect to Star Wars. It's that big, sweeping saga, and it all starts with a young farm boy. And now, again, from Jakku, a young scavenger girl. Look it out and wishing for something more. In Force Awakens, we didn't get that great shot with Rey. We got the great moments with Rey speaking to something bigger and better. But it was done so well with Skywalker staring out at the twin sons. We've all felt that way. I'll go to the cliffs of my hometown over the beach. I'll stare off into our one son. And I still feel like I'm having that moment, even now at my age. It's a great big world out there. How do I fit in? Why do I fit in? And where do I fit in? It's the core of the Star Wars story. Number eight, the mask being put on Vader for the first time in Revenge of the Sith. It's beautifully shot. Anakin and Obi-Wan have had their fight. Obi-Wan's left him for dead. The Emperor saved him. With Luke and Leia being born and Padme's in the process of dying, which is, is good, but not didn't play out as well as, as maybe I would have liked it. But why that's going on at the end of Sith, it, it's being, uh, we're cutting back and forth between that and, and Vader being born. Anakin dying, and Vader being born. And there's that moment with the mask being brought down over Anakin's face. And Lucas did a great job. Say what you will about Georgie. He did a great job. It's achingly beautiful. The mask coming down. Hayden Christensen uh, did a great job with his eyes. There's a moment where his eyes go wide. And it's basically the last time he'll use those eyes as, as his old self. So he takes his mask off again, I'm sure, to hibernate and meditate and all that kind of stuff later on. It's really the last time Anakin's eyes are in use and not Vader's. And that mask goes down, clamps down. There's that great close-up of the mask smoke kind of drifting up off of it and there's silence there's no music there's no sound and then the breathing begins and Darth Vader is truly born gives you those nerd chills number eight on my list number seven we're sticking in Sith Obi-Wan Kenobi just as a whole and Revenge of the Sith. You McGregor, I hope you get that standalone movie hashtag give us Kenobi. He was good in Phantom Menace. He was great in Attack of Clones. But in Revenge of the Sith, you McGregor hit it out of the park with Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's not just about what he was given to work with. It was fun. The stuff with Grievous wasn't great, but it was fun. Obi-Wan and his little adventure was fun. But then the last 30 minutes or so, when he's fighting Anakin, he's killing Anakin, and he's screaming, you were supposed to be the chosen one. You are supposed to bring, bring balance to the Force. Not tear it apart. It's a home run. It's a home run. Say what you will. That's a phrase I should put on a t-shirt. Say what you will about the Star Wars prequels. I contend along with my good friend Joseph Scrimshaw, who's the one that really made me dig deep and find it. There's a lot in the prequels that very much has its place in the Star Wars story. Obi-Wan Kenobi as a character is great. Alec Guinness obviously was great in how he played him in his wise old age. But Ewan McGregor really 
brought life to him. Credit James Arnold Taylor for what he does with him in the Clone Wars, absolutely. But Ewan McGregor really, really, really brought something to that character, and it really, really shined in Sith. It's number seven on my list. Number six, Han Solo returning to clear the path for Luke and a new hope. You're all clear, kid. Let's blow this thing and go home. Who doesn't love that moment? Whether you've seen it for the first time or the 50th time, it is a fist-pumping moment. It is the adventure of Star Wars in a moment. It is deep, too. It is the scoundrel, the smuggler, returning in a selfless act, throwing himself back in there to take up arms against an oppressor, to join a cause greater than himself. And it is proof that Luke, though he had the force and his own skills on his side, definitely needed his friend's help. It all worked in concert. It's a great moment. We're all clear, kid. Number five. Number five of the top 50 things I love about Star Wars. The Emperor. Every story needs a villain, right? We have one in Vader. Vader's a great villain, and he was definitely portrayed as the villain in A New Hope. And he definitely is the villain in Empire Strikes Back. But we start to learn that this Emperor character may be a little bit more powerful than the casual aside mention from Tarkin in A New Hope. And then we see him in Jedi, and now you know. The true evil, the big baddie, the boss for the boss fight is Emperor Sheev Palpatine. The prequels flushed out the character more. Ian McDermott did great. Yeah, sure. There was some fun theater-like overacting with the unlimited power. But again, I go back to the Plagueis scene and the seduction of Anakin to the dark side. There's a lot there with the Emperor. He's a great character. He's a mysterious character still, even to this day. James Lucino's book, Darth Plagueis, sheds a lot of light on Palpatine, and none of it official at this moment. I wish they could just rework that book, maybe fix some things that align with canon now, and just say, yes, this is canon. Or just out and right say, that's canon. The Emperor is great. He's quotable. Who doesn't love doing a good, good... One of my favorite moments is your overconfidence is your weakness. Your faith in your friends is yours. The Emperor's just fun. The Emperor's scary. The Emperor, Emperor's threatening. The Emperor is the villain that this story deserved. Absolutely one of the reasons I keep coming back for Star Wars day after day. Number four. The Jedi steps in The Force Awakens... This is, of course, the end of Force Awakens. And I'm saying this to say that the, the music titled The Jedi Steps, which is the end song, and the moment of Rey climbing up the Jedi Steps, climbing up those stairs and meeting Luke, Luke silently staring at her, no words said as she hands out the lightsaber, his lightsaber. As of right now, my favorite ending of all seven of the Star Wars movies, and perhaps one of my favorite endings in all of the big epic fantasy movies. 
It's great stuff in Lord of the Rings, great stuff out there as well. You can even figure some Game of Thrones stuff if you want to put it in there too, those big epic stories. This is my favorite moment. Ties back to what I said on the start of this list. Ray saying Luke Skywalker is a myth. I, th- I thought he was a myth. Luke was a myth. And this little scavenger from Jakku was the one all along, as her dreams proved, dreaming of an island on the sea. She was finally on that island. She finally had this blade that upon first touch gave her these horrible visions and dark things, scary things, foreboding things, things she didn't want to run to. It's a hopeful moment. It's a big moment that's played small. Carries great weight to it. God, I love it. And the music. When Force Awakens hit the theater, I was one of the people, there's a lot of people, and there's some people that still say, that uh, Williams, John Williams, uh, great as he is, there wasn't some, wasn't the best music in Force Awakens. It was great stuff, but you know there was no Imperial March, there was no Yoda's theme, there's no Luke theme, and no Duel of the Fates even. And I can get that. I can agree with that. I can totally agree with that. But upon further listen. There's some great stuff there. Kylo Ren's theme is is not as catchy as Imperial March, but you know it's Ren when you hear it. There's some great stuff in the Starkiller base battle. And Ray's theme is absolutely, to me now, as memorable as most other pieces in Star Wars. But the song I keep listening to over and over and over is The Jedi Steps. And it's perfect for the scene, it's perfect for the moment, and it's perfect for the saga. And it's part of what makes that great scene mean so much to me. Number three on the list, we're coming down to the end. If you stayed with me, I thank you. Number three on the list is Han Solo himself. I've tried to pick another favorite character. I've tried to be cuter or more creative. I mean, it's Han Solo. Who doesn't like Han Solo? But at the end of the day, it's Han Solo the end of the day he is who he is the galaxy's best smuggler the scoundrel the guy that gets the girl and the guy we all want to be friends with I love the Millennium Falcon because I want to tool around the galaxy with Han Solo when it comes to relationships I want to be as cool as Han Solo I want to say things like I know he is absolutely the character that grabbed me early and the character as Force Awakens proves brings me back again. Keeps me going. Han Solo. Han Solo. He's gone now. Rest in peace, Han. What a great run. We will see what that young Han Solo movie brings. We'll see if a Rogue One cameo makes sense. But part of the reason we have those question marks is because it is such an iconic character. Han Solo is Star Wars just as much as a Skywalker, just as much as a princess. Number two on the list, the top 50 things I love about Star Wars. It is the Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Return of the Jedi lightsaber duel. Still to this day, the best lightsaber duel in all of Star Wars. The Empire one's great. Force Awakens 1, Rey and Kylo Ren, great. And I love some of the big scoped 
versions of lightsaber battles. We got in Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith. We got a lot of new things. Obi-Wan Anakin is good. Packs a punch. Ewan McGregor makes it, makes it so. But I don't think you can defeat, as of yet, Luke, Vader, Emperor, Return of the Jedi. The music, the chorus swelling. Luke dancing so close over the dark side of the Force. The Emperor revealing himself as really a bigger power than we could even possibly imagine. So be it, Jedi. Luke being electrocuted, his teeth being electrocuted, calling out, Father, Father, Father. And then Darth Vader does the face turn. Turns into the good guy we wanted him to be at that point. Kills the Emperor. Saves his son, sacrificing himself in the process. That whole sequence is, to me, Star Wars personified. It is the saga. The music, the moments, the action, the dialogue, the emotions in the dialogue, the weighted moments in the silence, Luke hiding, the revelation of of his sister, Vader learning it now. We know now how he first learned he had a son and the anger and the power that he portrayed in that moment in the comic. And now you get to see this moment reveals this whole time. Oh, I had a daughter too. I had a daughter too. It's a great moment. It is a wonderful, wonderful moment. It is my favorite Star Wars moment. It is that that shot of Luke jumping out, screaming, no, the music swells, the chorus swells, and there's a shot of Luke overtaking Vader. It's great. Number one, top 50 things I love about Star Wars. On this 50th edition of Spotlight Star Wars, it's the moment right before the opening theme plays. 20th Century Fox fanfare may now be a thing of the past, but it is just as part of the Star Wars first six films as anything. There's a moment, and Force Awakens had it too. That first time I'm in the theater, watching at the press screening, there's that moment. Everything's playing. Lucasfilm, logo flashing on the screen. And a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away pops up. That's cool. That's cool, and that's key to Star Wars, right? But whether it's uh, December of 2015 or in the spring, May of 1999 or growing up, watching them on VHS, seeing Jedi in the theater, there is that moment, and you all know what I'm talking about. There is that moment when the 20th Century Fox fanfare fades away. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away pops up on the screen, and as it fades away, there is a beat, there is a moment that the Star Wars music is not yet exploded onto the screen. And in that moment, you take a breath and you think, we're here. It's Star Wars. I had that moment when Force Awakens was playing. For the first time, all my nervousness, all my nerves, all the anxiety, are they going to do it? Is my Star Wars fandom going to be rewarded? Or did I champion this movie, this Star Wars Episode Seven? Am I going to be hurt again? Boom. The opening theme hits. Star Wars is on your screen, and the opening crawl has begun. And I felt that way in May of 1999. Phantom Menace may have hurt us, 
I've said a lot of good things about the prequels, but I cannot deny that it was, at the time, a letdown. But that moment, when a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, faded away, and there was silence and a full-packed theater of an entire generation of Star Wars fans waited to hear and see and learn what Episode One was about. That moment was great. Attack of the Clones, it happened again. Could there be redemption? Revenge of the Sith, it happened again. Please give us redemption. And then it was felt perhaps greater than it had ever been felt before. The first time we all, no matter where you were and how you saw it for the first time, if you're listening to this, you're a Star Wars fan who lived for that moment because that moment carried so much hope and anxiety, intrigue, interest, and excitement. And there is a pause, and then it begins. And you know you are in the Star Wars saga. It is my number one thing I love about Star Wars. So guys, that's my list. It's the longest spotlight Star Wars ever recorded in the history and probably the longest one I'll ever record. I want to thank you all for listening, not just to this, but for the first 49 editions of Spotlight Star Wars. It means a lot to me. Your tweets mean a lot to me. Whether or not we, we always agree on what's going on in the Star Wars world, you know at the end of the day I love this just as much as you, and that we're all in this together. You can follow me at Cadnapsock and follow the Force Center podcast feed on Twitter at Force Center Pod. We also got the Facebook page. You can use that hashtag Spotlight Star Wars to tell me some of your favorite moments from Star Wars and the things you love, big and small, about being a Star Wars fan. I want to hear it. And if you're on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. Do us that favor. But more than any of that, please continue to join me, Joseph, and Jennifer in our adventures here on the Force Center podcast feed. Until next time, may that Force thing kind of, sort of, always remain around you.